Calling all Star Wars fans. Twin Suns Outpost is officially inviting you to the Twin Suns Expo on June 25th from 11 to 4 at Key Lime Cove Water Park and Resort in Gurney, Illinois. Join us to meet Star Wars legends Tom Kane, the voice of Yoda in the Clone Wars, and Tim Rose, Admiral Akbar in Return of the Jedi, and The Force Awakens. This is a free event with free autographs, panels, a 501st presence, and much more. For more information, please visit www.twinsonsoutpost.com or email ericpfeiffer at eric.twinsonsoutpost at gmail.com. Nate, oh my gosh, uh, hey, dude, come here. Look, Prince Shizor has actually graced us with his presence. He's in the casino, finally. Isn't this amazing? I guess so. What do, you, what do you mean you guess so? Dude, this is fantastic. I mean, look at him. He's so dreamy. Just look at look at that beautiful green, I mean, red skin. I mean, green skin, red. Now it's green again. Now it's red. Dude, why are you just acting like this is no big deal? Well, I mean, it isn't really, and... What is that? Something smells funny. It's like, like Axe and barbecue sauce. I I don't smell anything. I don't know what you're talking about. I was just staring at Shizor. <sighs> okay, whatever. Hashtag give Michael a boyfriend, I guess. Prepare yourself for Star Wars Shadows of the Empire. The cruel crime lord Shizor directs the carbonite capture of Han Solo and his imprisonment aboard bounty hunter Boba Fett's battle-ready Slave One. Now, Luke Skywalker goes undercover with Soldier of Fortune Dash Rendar as he rips through space in his battle-transforming Outrider. But can they stop Slave One in time? It's the ultimate ships for the ultimate battle! Dare to enter the shadow Star Wars Shadows of the Empire. Because in vehicles each sold separately from Kenner. Welcome, scoundrels, to this special Shadows of the Empire edition of Cloud City Casino your destination for Star Wars and gaming, and I'd like to thank you for visiting our fabulous podcast in the clouds. I am the administrator of this facility and your host, Michael Morris. And joining me, uh, that guy who was constantly sending you friend requests on uh, LinkedIn, Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. LinkedIn? Yeah, man. LinkedIn? I, dude, I told you I don't want to join that. I don't know why you keep sending me requests. There must be something wrong with my cybernetics that it's sending it out. I also know that it's been sending out a lot of uh, uh, robocalls for the upcoming Senate election, and I'm not entirely sure why. Oh, really? Yeah, which is especially odd because didn't the Emperor disband the Senate a couple years ago? Yeah, um, maybe you need to uh, update some firmware or something? <laughs> I guess I could do that. I'm just afraid that, you know, it's going to erase my memory or something. I, I really don't trust the operating system from time to time. This, uh, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know. This, what do you call it, uh, Industrial Automaton Vista, I think is what it was called. Ooh, wow, dude. I think uh, your insurance is way worse than you thought. <sighs> Hashtag. Thanks, Palpy. <laughs> so, all right, man. We, we're finally doing it. We've uh, teased it for about a month now. But uh, this is our Shadows of the Empire episode. You all, you all caught up, all ready to go? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've only had since 1996 to get ready for this episode. So I think we're good. Yep, that's true. So we've got the... 
basically each one of the things hit at a different time. So some of it, I guess, could have possibly already hit, and then some of it is coming up. But uh, this year is the 20th year anniversary of the Shadows of the Empire uh, media event, I guess. What do you call it? What would you call it? Multimedia extravaganza. That sounds almost as awesome as that uh, intro that we had for the Kinder Toys. Um, yeah, so anyone who doesn't know, I'm sure most people have at least some idea of what it is, but we initially heard, oh, hey, we're getting uh, this new Star Wars thing coming. And for me, now, some people may have been more tapped in and, and they may have gotten more clear messages, but, you know, I was hearing it from, uh, you know, random sources or, or whatever. I, it was probably magazines, in all honesty. I don't, I didn't have internet at that point, and I know it wasn't kit from kids on the playground because they weren't paying attention to Star Wars. They didn't know what Star Wars was. Um, so, point being, you know, I'm hearing, oh, there's this movie thing coming. And so I'm thinking, well, it's going to be The Shadows of the Empire. But turns out we got everything but the movie for that. Uh, and then, of course, that led into the special editions, which then led into the um, it led into the uh, the prequel film. So, it, really, a lot of people sort of give uh, Timothy Zahn the or you know the Thrawn trilogy. They sort of say, "Oh, okay, this is sort of where uh, you know the resurgence of Star Wars happened." And it you can kind of go back to that point as being like the first thing coming out of the dark times. But really, I think this was probably the first step, um, if not the the Hasbro toys, the uh, Power of the Force 2 line. I would say this was probably the first step toward us actually getting Star Wars back to where it is today and, and actually getting films and stuff. And this was sort of like a, a hype generator, basically. Right. Uh, and I mean, I go back and I look at it and I, I find that whole Dark Times turn kind of amusing from time to time. I actually have hit this... On, I think it was when I was doing From the Star Wars Library without the home video part of it uh, on YouTube. There really isn't a lot of dark times in there. A lot of, of time when there isn't a Star Wars product line out there. I mean, you've got, even after the Marvel series is over and the Del Rey novels have ended, you still have droids and Ewoks going as the comic line. You had the television series and whatnot. Uh, there's the Blackthorn 3D comic series. And then you sort of jump into very quickly the RPG getting going. But... Uh, Heir to the Empire was like this, this seminal moment, that and Dark Empire in 1991, to say, hey, we're going to make more spinoff materials, but this time, they're all going to be linked together. It won't be like it was with Del Rey and Marvel and the newspaper strips and all that back in the day, where basically they're doing their own thing, and they don't reference or connect to each other. Now, it's all going to link together. It's all going to be essentially tied together and just as real, but not necessarily just as real as the films, which is what the, the modern uh, new story group canon is doing. Um, and that brought a lot of hype, but they hadn't really done anything that actually linked everything together as one project. It was always sort of, here's this project that references this other one. Here's, you know, uh, Ulick Keldroma and uh, Exar Kun showing up in either the backstory of Dark Empire or being referenced in the Jedi Academy trilogy, but, oh, hey, over here, here's his story actually being told in Tales of the Jedi. It was sort of that shared universe thing. This was their attempt to say, as one story, let's give us one solid outing, but let's give it a novel, a comic, 
let's give it uh, basically its own video game, mm -hmm. and in doing so, let's treat this almost like it's a feature film release just without the movie, and let's add in the things that would go with that, like a toy line, a soundtrack, and so on. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily the cause of the resurgence because they were already working on the special editions at the time. Right, right. Uh, and they were actually able to work in a few little things like some of the little droids and whatnot from Shadows of the Empire into the special edition. But this was certainly something to prime the pumps of the audience. Those who were excited for Star Wars got more excited by this because it's just like right now with the... Uh, you know, it's a gimmick. We've talked about this before the show. Uh, the, oh my god, Captain America was always Hydra thing or oh my god they killed superman thing that this was the here's the episode between empire strikes back and return of the jedi and it made news in often mainstream news outlets which brought built the hype and prime the stage for the special editions. Right, right. Yeah, I, I guess that's the... I, th I think you kind of described it best. Uh, the only other thing I would uh, possibly describe it as is, is potentially a a gauge or, or, you know, to sort of meter the hype and, and determine, okay, would a, would a film work? Would a new film work? Let's not put all the money into the actual film, but let's kind of throw this other stuff out there and see what the interest is is like um maybe that's just me but that i, I kind of feel like that that was a lot of it too it seems like they really mm -hmm. you know the the journey to uh the phantom menace you know it started with this where you're getting all of all of the stuff but the movies then you turn around and you have the special editions which you have the movies in the theaters and then you finally get the new film with all the new product from that so uh, that that's kind of more more so what I I meant uh, that way, but um, yeah, man. So the the crazy thing, the toy line, uh, like I mentioned earlier on that uh, that little commercial, that was actually voiced by Mark Hamill, which I thought was awesome. Yeah, almost as cool, and and I would say there's one that beats it as far as coolness of having Mark Hamill come back in, and that is. The Vector Prime novel commercial, right? The, I have seen the worst of all wars and seen the redemption of evil, blah, blah, blah. That eventually it's basically him saying, I don't know if we can win it. And it's an in-universe Luke speaking kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, they brought him back into the mix. I mean, it really was, I, I would say that this, if this is an experiment to show something that could happen, I would say it was probably less for the movies. But in particular, I mean, this was to say, okay, you can tell a story in multiple media, and it's going to work for Star Wars. It really hadn't been done with Star Wars before. It really hadn't been done to this degree in other properties before. And in a sense, it set the stage for this idea, that shared universe thing. Although, interestingly, even though this worked, you didn't really see this experiment attempted again for a very long time. It really, really wasn't until The Force Unleashed that they tried to have a game with the soundtrack being released digitally in that case, with a novel, with a comic, trying to have slightly different angles. They didn't really do a cross-through or cross-over until Vector, and now Marvel's done it once with Vader down. It's like, this was the proof of concept that was like, ta-da, it works! And then everybody was sitting back going, that's cool, moving on, <laughs> right. and didn't really capitalize on the fact that they could do something like this and have it be successful. It was, it was odd to me. Th th that's what makes this unique for its time period it was just this massive multimedia success that didn't get 
replicated and run into the ground. Right, right. Yeah, and I don't know, because to me, I remember it. It was... It was huge and awesome, and uh, in some ways, and, and I'll go into that more. It, you know, it sort of built expectations for myself, as you know, because people talk about, oh, well, it's all these uh, grown-ups that were kids when Star Wars was first in theaters, and then they go see the Phantom Menace, and they they went in with these expectations. Well, me as an eleven-year-old and being involved in, well, not like involved personally, but but getting all of this Shadows of the Empire stuff. I had expectations for the Phantom Menace, you know? So even even from that aspect, uh, you know, it sort of built expectations for myself. But uh, like I said, I'll, I'll hit these, um, some other little interesting things on the, uh, the toy line. It wasn't huge. Uh, in fact, there was only five single figures that came out. You got uh, Dash Rendar, which was a, a new character created for, for this event. Uh, Prince Shizor. Who, who was created for the event as well. You had the uh, punk rock Chewie, which was the uh, Chewie and uh, I believe it was Snuva was uh-huh. the uh, bounty hunter mm-hmm. disguise that he was going under. And then you actually had uh, the Bausch or Boosh or Bursch, I don't know, the, the Leia. <laughs> and uh, then, of course, there was also Luke. But the Luke one is interesting to me because it, uh, he's basically in like this Imperial Guard attire but it's not the imperial guard attire from the uh from jedi and he's also never that i recall or or anything he was never actually in that attire in the book or the uh comic or the the video game so i don't know what that's about it was a really cool looking costume i just (laughs) i don't think it really had any place I, I don't believe it was ever used, and I think it was just sort of a figure that looked good, and that was it. Um, and they also, I think this was the first time. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think this was the first time that we actually had comic packs as well. Yes, it was. It set the stage for the comic packs in that, for the first time, they had packed in two figures in one comic and sold it as a separate product. In this case, what they had done is they just took essentially excerpts, really. Not full comics, but excerpts out of the comic line from Dark Horse to make these comics that basically now are are sought after as part of a collection for Shadows of the Empire. Uh, those who collect the Shadows of the Empire comics and ignore the the figures still go out and look for these. They also had some little pack-in comics um, that sort of retold, in essence, some of the earlier parts of the Shadows of the Empire story that were packed in with some of the, the larger boxed products. So... Yeah, they, they were experimenting with this idea of taking uh, one media and putting it in with the toys as opposed to having the toys just be a spin-off of it, sort of that using it as a gateway to say, hey, you like these toys? Why don't you go to the comic shop and buy issues one through whatever of Shadows of the Empire? Right, right. And those toys were really cool, too. Now, uh, for the most part, I, I think that the, the Boba Fett was a, a repaint of the Boba Fett that you could already get, and Vader was the exact same Vader you could already get. Uh, Shizor, I think, was a little bit different, um, but it may have been the exact same one as the, the little individual. But the IG-88, that was the first time you were able to get IG-88 since um, you know he'd come previously back in the, the original line for Empire Strikes Back. Um, and then uh, past that, of course, there was the the vehicles. And uh, 
for the vehicles, they actually had a swoop bike. The swoop bikes were huge, even though they've been around since like 1983 or 88, somewhere in there. Um, they really got huge uh, with with the Shadows of the Empire, and uh, even made it into the uh, the special edition with the uh, the Ronto and Swoop bike uh, traffic jam on Moss Eisley. Uh, and then there was also that was kind of the smaller one. So uh, anyone who's seen like the way they're doing stuff now where they'll pack a figure with, with a little uh, vehicle kind of like Ray and her um, speeder. This was the little uh, swoop bike or, you know, little gang member or whatever, and then his swoop bike. And then, of course, they also had the Outrider and the Slave One. Um, and then, because a lot of people, I think, or maybe it was just me, that um, are more familiar with the Slave One with the green, uh, I guess, lightsaber, you would say, or the, the green energy background card or whatever but uh it actually came in with this line with the purple card and then of course also there was the uh the tops cards that uh came out and that stuff that because i was trying to to find some of those i even remember getting some of those and they had some cool like holographic looking ones at least I, to what i recall um but those were good i mean i really bought into this thing uh it was like I said, back in the day for me, this was this was my jam. Um, but uh, past that, we'll I guess we'll move into the other thing that probably won't spend much time on is uh, the soundtrack. Now, did you have the soundtrack? I did have the soundtrack, um, and it was one of those ones. It was, it was weird to hear, mm-hmm. and it had a feel that was like what we would have had with the Star Wars films. But it wasn't John Williams, and there were aspects that we had to kind of listen to and wonder, where would this have been heard within the book or within the comic and so forth? Not quite as much with, when it comes to the game, because the game itself had its own music as it, as it went through, a lot of it being repurposed older stuff. Right. Um, but in a sense, I think this sort of primed us to be able to accept things that came later, like, you know, Duel of the Fates. And whatnot, you know, this idea that something can be Star Wars music without necessarily sounding like something that we've necessarily heard before. Uh, and I would say probably even more on point to someone like Kevin Kiner with the music for the Clone Wars, which was, again, it's riffing on John Williams themes, but not necessarily him. And we came to accept that as Star Wars. Uh, this was I, I don't I would say that it's not as memorable a soundtrack as something like uh, the soundtrack to the Knights of the Old Republic game. Or to The Force Unleashed, it didn't really feel like it had a bombastic theme in and of itself that really stuck out in our minds. But I think part of that is that the game was a Nintendo 64, and it's a system seller for N64, but a Nintendo 64 game and a PC game of the mid-90s versus those other games coming out later in an era in which your music can be much more distinctive on a video game cartridge or video game disc. So, uh, decent. But not something that really left a lasting impression on me, it feels like. Uh, certainly not as much as some of the ones that came later. But an experiment, nonetheless. So, I actually listened to this. Uh, I threw it on my uh, my phone to listen to at work today. Oh, man, it's awful. <laughs> I... and, by, and by throwing it onto your phone, you mean you threw it onto your Zach Morris giant phone or something like that, right? Because this is the 90s we're looking at. Uh, well, true, true. No, uh, I, I downloaded it onto my phone to listen to today and 
it was really, really, really hard to get through. Um, because it, it just, it was not, you know, I mean, uh, let's see, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, to, to gauge how I, how I want to, because what I really just want to say is like, it, it sounded like someone recorded a high school, uh, band basically like, like a high school concert band, you know, it just, it wasn't there. Like the, the music, I mean, it's, it was so basic. It, just was very dull and not like I said. It it didn't sound like um you know these musicians that have mastered their craft. It sounded like a high school um a high school band that's just you know learning trills and they're they're working on their trills. Like it just was really hard to get through. And like you said, there's just nothing really stands out. In fact, most of it sounds the same to me. And the only thing that I, if I was going to pick one thing that I was like, okay, this this isn't as bad as the rest would be the final song. And maybe it was because I knew it was the final song. So I'm like, oh, okay, I can, I can bring myself to feel a little bit more joy right now. But it was the, uh, I think the destruction of uh, Shizor's Palace or something like that uh, is the, the title of it. But other than that, pretty hard to get through for myself what you're saying that it didn't sound as good as john williams this is the man who who joel mcneely who composed the music for the parent trap three and (laughs) terminal velocity and gold diggers the secret of bear mountain and flipper yeah I, i dude give me a clone wars soundtrack any day hell i'll listen to the uh I listened to a rebel soundtrack before I listened to this again and uh, nothing, nothing against the music of rebels. Just the, you know, the, (laughs) the, the hatred of the has spread from rebels round table to infect the rest of star Wars report. It's, it's pretty disturbing, but uh, past that, I have no real issue with, with the, uh, the rebels music. So I, I just wanted to make sure I'm like, I should probably clear that up. I, uh, I don't want to, don't want to put something out there. What? Actually, I don't care. Never mind. Uh, anyhow, so moving on, uh, the other thing that I've done recently was I com- I got through the entire uh, six issue series of the comic, and uh, I was I was actually messaging you on this. It was, it held up pretty dang good, I think, for a twenty year old comic. I think that's one good thing I would say about those early years of Star Wars publishing, the the 90s in particular, is that most of those stories still hold up fairly well because they're not dated by their style. They all try to emulate the style of the films to a large degree. They're self-referencing within just that era, but there weren't a lot of stories around that time to get super, super caught up and continuity references and stuff like that. So they become kind of an easier read to get through. And they, they don't lose themselves in the sci-fi as much as some of the later stories, like, say, in the, the early 2000s do. The comic, the, the, the odd thing that they did with this, and this is something that, again, it hasn't really been replicated for those who haven't had a chance to check these out, is they said, okay, we're going to tell the story of Dash Rindar, essentially the replacement Han Solo, because he's in Carbonite, and we're going to tell his story in the game. We're going to tell the story of 
the main other characters and the primary thrust of the tale with Shizor and all that. We're going to tell that story. <laughs> you said the primary thrust of Shizor. Yes, yeah, and Shizor <laughs> is the ladies' man or thinks he is because of the pheromones. I understand. You know, I hashtag get Michael a boyfriend I quickly. Couldn't, I could not let that go. Couldn't let it go. Couldn't let it go. Couldn't let it pass. Um, but uh, the novel was designed to basically tell sort of the broader story, the core story, you might say. And then you have the comic, which is basically sort of off to the side and mostly the story of Boba Fett. Because the whole idea here is that Han Solo hasn't gotten to Jabba the Hutt yet. And you have this nine-month gap pinned down. Some stories said six months, some said one year. It was finally pinned down to nine months in the Essential Atlas, thanks to really yours truly when we, we were working on it and having <laughs> to pin down a, a date for Return of the Jedi on the internal calendar. But basically... Bofet kind of takes the long way around when it comes to finally getting Han to Jabba. So his trials and travails and doing so and other bounty hunters coming after him to try to steal the prize and all of that becomes the, the main uh, driving force of the comic. So in essence, what they're telling is one story from three different angles that, while they overlap and intersect, aren't necessarily telling the exact same thing, just in different media. Whereas even when they experimented with this later with something like The Force Unleashed. The Force Unleashed 1, the novel was essentially a walkthrough of the game, didn't really add much of anything new, especially new scenes or anything like that, and the comic gave a new framing story around it, but the main story wasn't really changed at all. They changed it up a little bit for The Force Unleashed 2 and gave us a comic that was somewhat different, actually focusing on Fett again to an extent, and then gave us a novelization that added more and gave us Juno Eclipse's side of what was going on. But they never really experimented with this format again, which is striking to me because of how well this worked. Uh, in this case, they even worked in, like there was a, a pop-up comic book called Battle of the Bounty Hunters that's basically uh, when Boba Fett shows up and is fighting IG-88 or one of the IG-88s briefly uh, to, to keep hold of Hun's a carbonite block and all of that stuff. But yeah, I think John Wagner's comic held up pretty well. It, to me, it's the least essential of them and the one that usually gets the least praise as opposed to the novel and the game because it does feel like, of all three, this is the least necessary and sort of the side story. This is the, oh, it is Boba Fett over there doing its thing. What about the main characters versus Shizor, which is the the primary conflict, I was going to say thrust, but conflict <laughs> of the tale. Right, right. Which, to me, that's something that I, I really enjoyed. And and the one thing about it that's great, I love me some Judge Dredd. Like, love, love, love Judge Dredd. And John Wagner was one of the original creators of the Judge Dredd comics. So, um, that may be, you know, that may kind of play into to why it's, why this comic has kind of stuck with me for so long. Um, just, just liking that style, but, uh, it just, to me, it worked and, and, you know, and that's the thing too, thinking about, okay, Judge Dredd being more with, I, I think the scum and villainy side really works to his strengths. Um, so, so I, th I think that works. And then also, you know, yeah, he kind of got to, there were obviously some, some story beats that he had to hit that were in the game and in the, the novel, but Besides that, he's able to sort of say, okay, they've got to be here at this point, but what were they doing before that? And and really sort of telling that way. So I I liked it um, a lot. And my only question is, I don't know how to pronounce the uh, the leader 
of the the swoop bike gang, Jabba's swoop bike gang. <laughs> I don't know if that's I don't know if that's big jizz, jizz. I want to say jizz, giz, but I feel like I should censor giz. Yeah, I know, maybe? I know. I think at the time, and granted, this was coming out whenever I was in. Uh, I guess it was the middle of high school. So like, <laughs> big jizz. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it's interesting because those characters wind up having sort of a life of their own later. These characters that get introduced here, um, you wind up with Jix, one of the, the swoop by characters. Actually, he's an Imperial agent, winds up getting his own story, Shadow Stalker, that gets initially serialized and then gets released as a single issue, like a one-shot comic when it's all collected. And you've got uh, the Jabba tape and other these serialized kind of stories that winds up dealing with a couple of swoop gang members and and big whatever his name is <laughs> even winds up later playing a role in the clone wars when they use him in the storylines or the, the tales of the uh, clone Wars secret mission story um by writer windham who also by the way is the guy who wrote the uh, shadows the uh, uh the shadow stalker tale i okay. believe it was so it's an interesting thing like th- this it's another of these stories, kind of like the Jedi Academy trilogy, kind of like the Thrawn trilogy, which in their eras seeded these characters that wind up being able to be picked up later. And while you see that here, you don't see that as much with some of the other ones of that era, like the Corellian trilogy, the Black Fleet Crisis, Trucet Bakura. Uh, it was one of those ones that really stood out as part of that sort of triumvirate of these are not only early ones that are setting stages in particular eras and really giving us the next big push of the story, we're also seeding things that will be used for years to come. Unfortunately, of course, some of the characters seeded here, we're talking about the comics, do we want to hit the fact that there was a sequel comic? Uh, Out of State Empire Revolution? (laughs) Yeah, and I remember that one too. I don't remember much from it uh, because it's been... 20 years since I read it, but I recall that pretty much just being about Guri, I think. It's Guri and, like, uh, an heir to Shizor, and just, uh, all you really need to know about Shadows of the Empire Evolution, the comic series, is that it was freaking awful, and you should probably avoid it at all costs. Uh, it was Steve Perry, who was the writer of the novel, um, it was his first basically movement into the comic book writing stage and it really it, it, it was it was bad it was bad <laughs> uh, I, I guess i should say that one of the themes that's carried across though into that comic and has carried across even to this day and even made it into canon through the clone wars is the fact that in telling this story of shadows of the empire this is where the idea of the black sun crime syndicate got introduced and the phalene like she's or that species got introduced so you wind up seeing that, you know, up into things like uh, uh, the Coruscant Knights books, into things like Shadow Games with Dash Rindar. You wind up seeing it eventually uh, having Black Sun and Faline, though not Shizor, being part of the Shadow Collective that we see Darth Maul and, uh, and uh, Savage Opress running in the Clone Wars. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, this was something that is one of the few instances of something from the what's now the Legends continuity back then, the official continuity, that has such an impact in terms of creating such a broader sort of concept of, hey, it's not just the huts out there, there is an organized crime aside from them that winds up still having impact to this day in a level of canon and a, and a continuity beyond itself, yeah. in essence. You can still find references to Black Sun and Black Sun Vigos 
in the new canonical stuff a timeline in which Shadows of the Empire itself doesn't even exist. Right, right. Uh, even even the Outrider itself exists, even though um, mm-hmm. Dash Rindar currently doesn't. <laughs> yeah, currently, currently, because of course the the Outrider shows up in the special edition. Right, and and even so much that it's not like oh well that's a YT twenty four hundred like it's specifically the Outrider. Um, from from what I was looking i i may mm-hmm. be i may be jumping the gun on saying that but i was thinking i looked at it and i'm like well let me see is it the, a 2400 or is it the outrider and i, I recall going oh it's the outrider <laughs> you know so um that's that's interesting and i guess if some someone said and i i can't really think off the top of my head where it would step on it exactly but someone said that the um the Princess Leia moving target sort of runs over this book. Therefore, nothing, none of the events of this could happen simply well, because of that. I mean, you're not really, they're not really bringing Legends events over into canon anyway. Right, right. At this point. But yeah, the, this story, and, and this kind of moves more towards the novel side, but this story does help set up, okay, uh, what is the preparation for the Battle of Endor? How is it that the Rebels get their hands on... Uh, the information that they need to set up for the Battle of Endor, which, of course, was the trap set by the Emperor. What is the whole many Bothans died to bring this information kind of thing? How did that all get set up? That is told as part of this story, as part of Shadows of the Empire. And the lead-up to uh, the the massing at Sullust of the Rebel Fleet and the Battle of Endor, to a degree, is being dealt with in... And, in fact, even the information that they found and like how they analyzed the information about the fact that there's another Death Star out there and all that. That is all dealt with in uh, Moving Target, which was, for those who are like, Moving Target, what is that? It's one of those, it's like a younger reader book, like a young adult book, I guess you'd say, that was released as part of Force Friday. It was that, Weapon of the Jedi, and Smuggler's Run were all kind of of the same vein, those character books. But that's the one. Moving Target is the one that really feels like it has some continuity impact because it's really the only thing we've got in a Shadows of the Empire vein to bridge Empire and Jedi and tell how... Uh, the events get set up for the Battle of Endor. Okay, but was anything like actually contradicting to this one, though? I mean, it's you know, here's where we got the plans. Here's how we're analyzing the plans, mm-hmm. et cetera. I, I think that it's sort of assumed that since it's so similar, it must be stepping on what came before, right? Um, but it seems like it's sort of in a almost in like a Rogue One stepping on the end of the Han Solo trilogy sort of way, right. in that, okay, well, we're, we've got something similar happening, therefore it must negate the other one. But again, I would stress for those who aren't following the continuity stuff as closely, it's not really negating anything. It's a separate continuity, right? right. and that just happens to be what's telling a similar version of the story. It's kind of like uh, you take Transformers the movie, you take... The live-action Transformer films, you take the Armada slash Energon slash Cybertron saga for Transformers, and they all have a story of how Megatron becomes Galvatron, but it's not like one stepping on the other. They've been separate continuities to begin with. Right, right. I was, I guess I meant mine more of a, a philosophical type of thing of like, what if they decided, you know what, that Shadows of the Empire we did 20 years ago, that was awesome. Let's go ahead and take that out of Legends and let's just republish that book and say it's canon. I don't yeah. ever expect that to happen. I was just wondering, would that be possible at this so it's, point? So it's philosophical. So it's more like, 
Have you ever heard the story of Steve Perry the Wise? <laughs> Right. Oh my goodness. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, the uh, the other thing that I want to mention on the the comics before we we talk more about the novel and then of course the the video game is the the whole thing with Boba Fett. Now that to me, it's it's been a little while since I've I've read it, but I was thinking that those same events or or similar events were covered in the uh, the Bounty Hunter Wars books. Am I remembering that incorrectly? I can't remember if it's Bounty Hunter Wars or if we're thinking of, of one of the tales that's in uh, one of the anthologies. But yeah, the, the part of Boba Fett's story here is told in actually multiple media, particularly the whole clash between him and, and IG-88 are told in various stories. Yeah, it's, it's, a very, it's one of those intersections that you see a lot of stories trying to touch on. Though in this case, interestingly, it's one of those things where it's not something mentioned in a film that's constantly having all kinds of authors trying to touch on the exact same thing, like, say, the bounty hunter we ran into at Ord Mantell and stuff like that, or the finding of the Death Star plans. But, yeah, it's sort of one of those seminal moments of, okay, how does he get him there, and, oh, he runs into IG-88, how do we connect these? I mean, like I said, it's it's got its own story, even, with the Battle of the Bounty Hunters pop-up comic from Dark Horse that's in continuity. Right, right. So, and and here's the thing. So, if if it was if it was the case, this would have been where that stuff was pulled from for those books. Then, if I'm not mistaken, because I was I was just looking mm-hmm. at, for instance, I just pulled up the Mandalorian armor. That's 1998. Oh yeah, yeah. This was this was the initial source of that. This is also where, I mean, even there are even some events of this that are referenced in the radio drama of Return of the Jedi. Uh, some people might say, wait a second, radio dramas, those were way before that. That was like the 80s. A New Hope and Empire were the 80s. It took a long time. In fact, right around the time that Brian, uh, Brian Daly passed away, when they finally got the Return of the Jedi one you know, up and running and produced and whatnot. And by then, this was already in the works or had been released, and they were able to work those elements in there. It, again, it's, it's like the Thrawn trilogy. It's like the Jedi Academy trilogy. It's laying a foundation upon which a lot of things touch on and build more so than a lot of the other books of its same era. Right. Right, yeah. It, I mean, it, it is crazy. You can really go down a rabbit hole tracking some of this stuff. So, uh, very cool. Um, I'm happy with it. Uh, I guess the one thing now that's always kind of since we're talking about the bounty hunters and stuff like that, and it, and it does sort of relate here as well. Um, I guess Clone Wars kind of stepped on on this a bit, because uh, even, even for its time. Uh, which I, I don't recall ever hearing anything about it, like how, you know, there was an outcry about Mandalore and all of that stuff, but um, in the Clone Wars series, Bosk was sort of uh, Boba Fett's uh, protector or whatever, you know, his, his bodyguard. And, and then, of course, uh, there was Dengar and, and all of that, whereas in the, uh, the Bounty Hunter tales, and then, of course, here, they're all sort of at odds. Well, yeah, but, I mean, that's, you know, you have... Like twenty years in between, right. approximately, for them to have a falling out or their business right. arrangements to stop. That's that was never really looked at as a particularly big issue. In fact, actually, the only real issue that people kind of debated for a little while that came out of Shadows of the Empire was more the whole Faline Black Sun thing. Because when you see them in the Clone Wars, they're run all by Faline. Um, but then there's that whole thing. Well, you know, most of them wind up dead. There is a 20-year gap, and actually the, the sort of the rebuilding to an extent of 
Black Sun in the wake of what happens there, and actually a little bit of the tie-in to the what's happening on Mandalore, get dealt with to a degree in uh, Shadow Games, the, the the novel Shadow Games. So, okay. you know, I, I think it's one of those things that more easily brushed off with the fact that there's a big time stretch in between, more so than something like the Mandalorians, where it completely changed their culture, and it was a, whoa, you know, their home planet is different, and their culture is right, different. How right. do you change this within the span of 20 years? Whereas in this case, it's like, oh, yeah, things change in 20 years, yeah. even though in a sense it's saying the same thing. Right. No, I no, I hear you. Yeah, I mean, it's relationships certainly change uh, in that time, and, and that's definitely possible. Uh, I mean, you could even say that uh, it, it sort of is a last-minute change, you know? Like, it, to me, it would be believable to say, well, no, they were good all the way up till going after Solo, but Jabba put such a high bounty that they were tearing at each other's throats for it. You know, s- something sort of like that, as far as if you're trying to, mm-hmm. um, if you're trying to, uh, um, what's the word? Um, retcon? N- no, not retcon, but... Um, um, Reconcile? Mm, getting closer. Um, BS? <laughs> there we go, that's what, no. Um... If you're trying to, to, I guess, justify. Now, of course, remember, though, I mean, thinking about this, not only do we not have the whole Clone Wars background of how they were, you know, kind of at each other and everything like that. This is still the era when Boba Fett wasn't a clone of Jango Fett. Nobody knew Jango Fett even existed. I mean, this is the era in which we're getting trickles of his background, and it's all the whole he's the journeyman protector Jaster Mareel from Concord Dawn thing. So they're really what... Bo- Boba Fett's relationships is the least of Boba Fett's worries when it comes to upcoming uh, T canon and G canon stuff. Right, right. <laughs> that is true. So I guess with that, let's let's kind of start hitting some uh, points about the novel. Now, for me, I, I listened to it today as well, um, and I, I got to listen to through the entire audiobook, and I just don't understand why this book gets the hate it does me neither i particularly like it i mean i think it's one of the ones it's weird it's got some themes that kind of make you go wait what Mm -hmm. and to an extent it might be kind of looking back on it going whoa these are this is some weird events to happen between the films but again in context of 1996 there wasn't anything particularly odd or weird feeling about this. I think there were elements of the, whoa, Shizor and the pheromones thing and Leia and, wait, what? And there was, like, levels of kind of shock to some things and kind of sitting back going, huh, that was unexpected. But it didn't really get panned as much at the time. I think now what's happening is, again, we're into this era in which we expect certain types of things from Star Wars books and the things that are more campy, more fantasy, more... Uh, tongue-in-cheek that we see in a lot of these earlier books they're not they're not i'm not gonna i don't want to say accept uh uh uh, praised i mean they're just kind of they're not looked at the same way as now like there was an era in which for instance uh, anakin being trained by ikrit for a little bit as anakin solo being trained by little fuzzy ikrit was perfectly in keeping with well, that's just the spirit of what Star Wars was doing at the time. Although now we look back and say, Anakin Solo was being trained by a freaking bunny rabbit thing? What the <laughs> F? You right. know, um, we, we as Star Wars fans have grown up, the attitudes in a sense towards the, the way that things were handled in the Bantam era have seemed to change as well. But no, I think it, I think it still holds up fairly well for what it did. 
uh, for mm-hmm. what it was trying to do. But then again, I would say probably the same thing about the Black Fleet Crisis or Corellian trilogy that would have other people pulling their hair out. Right. And that's the thing, too, is it does, you know, I even kind of go, did you really even read it? Or did you just kind of go read Spark Notes or something? Because anytime anyone discusses it, it's all, all they'll discuss is the the scene um i say scene it's in a book but but the the part in the book where um uh shizor was using his pheromones on leia and if they're not talking about that they're just saying oh well um uh, oh gosh uh, um dash rindar's just uh han solo light Mm-hmm. And and really, if you're going off the book, Dash Rendar is a very small part of the actual novel. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's the the focus of the game, not the mm-hmm. novel. I mean, he goes off on his own way. I think that this is the same thing, and and I have a hard time with this because I am like the meme on Facebook, right? I still think the 1990s was like 10 years ago, um, <laughs> just because my age and all. Right. No. I'm but uh, I mean, we keep in mind that we're at the 20th anniversary of this. At this point, it's why we're talking about it. And most of the people, I would argue, who decry it are exactly like what you said. Did you even read the book? And a lot of this era's stories get that kind of flack, and it becomes sort of like the Me Too phenomenon, the bandwagon phenomenon, the I haven't read it, but I've heard other people decrying it, so I'm going to also. I guarantee you... Probably 80% of the people out there who argue that the Crystal Star was the worst Star Wars novel ever have never read the Crystal Star. The people who gripe about Children of the Jedi and, oh, Ghost Callista, oh, what were they thinking, have probably never read Children of the Jedi. Um, But it's just the thing to do. It's the bandwagon thing very much like sort of the bashing of the Phantom Menace where most of the time instead of it being rational arguments about the merits of the film and its flaws and that sort of thing and certainly there are plenty to talk about um, it just becomes <laughs> everybody else didn't like the Phantom Menace I want to be cool too. Phantom Menace sucks! It's right. It's friggin' high school. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm with you. Because in my thing is, um, which I brought this up in uh, episode way back with Scott Rifen when we were discussing it. And, and I was like, you know, yeah, um, the big problem people have is with Shizor. But here's the thing. Should Shizor be acting like a hero? Like, do we want him to be an upstanding person? Or do we want him to be this, you know, skeezy uh, leader of uh, essentially the, the largest mafia you know, in the galaxy. So to me, I was just like, yeah, okay, of course what he's doing is wrong and disgusting. That's Mm -hmm. who he is. I mean, and and remember, this is the 90s. In a sense here, what Shizor does is act presidential. (laughs) That's true, too. (laughs) Princess Leia, I feel your pain and your boobies. (laughs) That's right. That is is the era that we're in here. But he's... They, they made him a different type of villain. They consciously made him a different type of villain than Vader. And right. there's a great counterpoint uh, in the novel early on. And I want to say it's the prologue to the novel where basically we find that when Vader and the Emperor are having their conversation about Luke via holocom in The Empire Strikes Back, which granted got changed later for this, you know, the, the DVD and all that, um, Shizor is essentially in the background watching right. the conversation. Yeah. And 
you see him as he's he designed he's designed as a rival for Vader with different interests, different skills, a different personality, a different mindset, but still wanting that level of power to essentially be the indispensable one for the Emperor. To make him super similar to Vader would have kind of defeated the purpose of why they were developing the character that way. There's actually a really good behind-the-scenes book um, called The Secrets of Shadows of the Empire by Mark Cotavaz, which is one of the few behind-the-scenes of a video game book they've ever done for a Star Wars game, uh, and a really fascinating read because it goes through the full development of this entire multimedia project. And, yeah, Shizor, the things that people decry about Shizor are the things that make him unusual and different from vader right um i feel like that's i mean the whole changing skin color thing is a little odd but again this is the 90s he was emulating michael jackson <laughs> yeah i mean the the whole skin color thing I, I didn't think was necessary per se but it was alien you know so it was yeah, sort he's of a lizard right right um and, and i honestly thought he did a great job of for instance, and, and I know this is not going to win me any fans, but let's uh, compare and contrast him to uh, to Thrawn. You know, Thrawn. Oh is Lord, a- you're in trouble. <laughs> oh, so here's the thing with Thrawn. Thrawn is he's a little too perfect. You know, he he doesn't seem to have any sort of flaws, whereas with uh, Shizor, he does. Thrawn is just really smart and you know he's smart and and he does that whereas with Shizor you you sort of get where his his confidence sort of comes from and and uh, his his motives and and his mindset you know he is very reptilian in his thinking um which i think kind of works really well for the fact that he is a reptilish uh alien and you know past that you see his weaknesses and, you know, for instance, bringing up the thing with Leia, that ended up uh, coming back to bite him. He thought he was completely in control of the situation and that he was going to use that uh, to get Luke Skywalker when, in actuality, he, it, uh, like I said, it ended up sort of screwing him over. So I like that he is an intelligent character, but also a flawed character, which makes him beatable for the heroes. Yeah, Thrawn listens to classical music, whereas Shizor listens to Barry White. <laughs> I was thinking Prince, but... Or Prince, they got, yeah. there you go, there you go. I, I was really thinking more Prince, and uh, even if Prince was not uh, on everyone's minds with his uh, unfortunate passing recently, I still would have said Prince. Like, to me, Shizor would be all about it. And once again, it's the 90s. There you go. This is what it sounds like. When the hawk bats cry, <laughs> basically, yeah. Um, I don't. I, th- I think that the book does tend to get a bad rap, but it, it's it's funny because nowadays a lot of times you will see people looking back at it, and in essence, they're treating it in much the same vein as something like Battlefront Twilight Company. And you and I had an interesting conversation about this <laughs> on one right. of the recent streams. We had we had some interesting back and forth on things like the Thrawn trilogy on yeah, some that of the one, Battlefront I really, streams. That was a blast. I suggest anyone go check. What was the number for that stream? Uh, 23, I think. 23 mm-hmm. or 24. Yeah, that uh, was, that's one I think that uh, everyone should go check out. Unfortunately, because of <laughs> some... some uh, Issues with internet and stuff like that. It wasn't able to get as good as as it could have been. I feel like, but we 
I don't know. We I think we both were having fun. It was say yeah. um I don't guess you would say a uh, kind of like a, a, a gentleman's debate. It was sort of like a gentleman's it was, argument. Are you nuts? <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was you say, you talking the merits of of uh, of aftermath and then downplaying the throne trilogy and me wondering if you had lost your rocker. But um, but yeah. no. But, but the reason I bring that up is because in that conversation we were talking. Uh, we were taking questions from the chat. And one of the people in the chat, and this is this is all stuff you can find on the YouTube channel, right? YouTube.com slash user slash Chrono Radio. It's, it's Battlefront Livestream Podcast number, like I said, 23, 24. Look in the description. It's one that's going to say that Michael's with us. Um, but basically, somebody asked about Battlefront Twilight Company, and we found that our opinions significantly diverged on that. And I think that what's happening now is that people are kind of looking at Battlefront Twilight Company a little bit askance because they're like, oh, well, it's just... A video game tie-in novel and certainly star wars video game tie-in novels don't always necessarily have that good of a pedigree i mean i think back the ones for the old republic pretty good the force unleashed two pretty good the force unleashed one not so much ruins of dantooine tying off of star wars galaxies oh my god burn it like the holiday special <laughs> um but if you look back at this this was not a book based on a game or a game based on a book it was designed as a multimedia project where they're all covering different aspects of the story as one whole, and yet this book still sometimes gets derided as, oh, that's just that video game tie-in novel. It's not worth checking out. And I think that does a disservice to Steve Perry, to the novel, to this era's storytelling, to the project, and in a sense, to whoever's saying it, because they're missing out on a fundamental, seminal moment in the Legends continuity, especially of its era. Though I don't know if I want to use the phrase seminal when referring to a Shizor. I mean <laughs> seminal like an important moment, not seminal as in something else. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, you know, and a lot of it, too, is that there there's so many different connections, even the, uh, the whole thread the needle thing at Beggar's Canyon. That comes from, um, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't that come from the A New Hope script? Yeah, the script of the radio drama at yeah, the time. Yeah, I know for sure it was in the radio drama, but I didn't know if that came from the uh, the script as well. Um, and in fact, actually, is that's in the um, the new Star Wars comic. Didn't didn't they do the whole thread mm -hmm. the needle thing with Luke as a kid, and he blows up the uh, blows up his Skyhopper, and then uh, Uncle Owen gets mad at him. Yeah, and uh, yeah. uh, then the newest. Uh, from the journals of Obi-Wan Kenobi, or old Ben Kenobi, whatever it is, yeah. Um, and, and I was talking about Thread the Needle is in the Beggar's Canyon thing where you take the skyhopper through the little hole thing. Thread the Needle has nothing to do with any kind... It's, it's not a euphemism for what Shizor was trying to do with Leia. <laughs> Although... Uh, but I, I guess the, the core of this, and this is kind of what we've been leading toward, and we've alluded to it quite often, is that the thing that people remember usually most about Shadows of the Empire... It's not the novel, it's not the comic, it's not the soundtrack, it's not the toys, it's the video game, which was really one of the few killer apps, as they call them, that would make people go out and buy a Nintendo 64 if they didn't already own one. Um, this was huge from a video game standpoint of its day, and still is one of the... It's, I'm not sure it's necessarily one of the highest reviewed Star Wars games out there, but it's certainly one of the ones that people remember the most from this era, particularly that wasn't a PC game. At least not a PC exclusive. Right, right. And uh, and bringing that up, of course, there we talked about this in the um, 
the stream, but I actually just recently got it from Good Old Games. So anyone who's interested in, in checking this out from hearing the conversation, you can head over to Good Old Games and pick it up there, uh, which is definitely what I would suggest doing. There, there were distinct differences, uh, specifically the cutscenes. The cutscenes for the N64 were, there was sort of like a motion comic where you would get like small movements. Like for instance, you may see Lebo move his head over to look at Dash Rendar, but D Dash Rendar never moves his lips or anything. And then the words kind of pop up. Whereas with the, uh, the PC version, you get a full moving cutscene that's actually been animated and everything. And for its time looked really, really good. I guess we should point out here that in essence, the PC, aside from being able to be a little bit more robust because it was a more powerful platform of the time, um, we should probably keep in mind there was almost a year difference, though, between when they were released. The Nintendo 64 version was released in December of 96. It wasn't until September of 97 that they released the PC version, and they had time to sort of build upon what the N64 version had done. So I'm not sure that it's... A lot of people look at it and go, oh, is this proof that the PC is the master race? Well, <laughs> I don't eh, sound anything like that. Was it selling PCs? No, it was selling in 64s. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't actually aware of that. I, I didn't know that they had uh, sort of went and, and uh, ported it over at that point. So that's, that's a neat little tidbit. But yeah, I just think for now, I mean, honestly, I say get it both ways if you can, but if, if you can't get it for N64, you're probably going to have a more enjoyable experience on your PC anyways. Yes. As, as Prince Shizor says, it's always fun to get it both ways. <laughs> um, and I, I like the structure of this game mm -hmm. because it, you would think that because of it tying into the novel and the comic that it's just going to cover that era. And in a sense, it does, right? I mean, you've got um, the the segments where, for instance, they're rescuing Princess Leia, which actually ties into the novel directly and that sort of thing. And you see him clashing with bounty hunters like IG-88, which in a sense is kind of paralleling some of the stuff that's happening in the comic, uh, or at least referencing the stuff that's happening in the comic. But this actually in a lot of ways, was a precedent-setter for Star Wars games in its first chapters because it initially it crosses over with The Empire Strikes Back and we get a mission during the Battle of Hoth and this was the first time in a Star Wars video game you actually tripped up the AT-ATs instead of just blasting them like you've been doing since the Atari days. Uh, and that, of course, was used again and again and again. It's in the mm -hmm. Rogue Squadron. It's, it's in the new Battlefront. It's a mechanic that was really showcased here saying, you know, look what we can do. We can be more realistic to the films. And it's been copied over and over again ever since. It's one of the most well-remembered parts of Shadows of the Empire, the video game. Yeah, and in fact, that le that whole level is actually what um, caused them to say, all right, let's do a Rogue Squadron game. Once they realized that they could do that effectively, they then started working on doing the first Rogue Squadron game for the mm -hmm. N64. And, you know, right. of course, we'll we'll have to cover that little thing. Uh, hit that. Uh, Someday. Well, yeah, I mean, because there were, there were three different Rogue Squadron games. There was, of course, the novels, and then also the uh, the comic series for that. So we'll have to do something similar to this coming up uh, at oh, some point on. as well. <laughs> Here, that's a lot more. Uh, though it, 
it's interesting that the, from a technology standpoint, mm -hmm. there was a leap that had to happen between Shadows of the Empire and Rogue Squadron. If you really wanted to play Rogue Squadron and not have the graphics be choppy and it be kind of slow and some things not work, you had to buy a, a memory expansion pack that you had to install in your N64 in order to play it. So this wasn't quite at the technical peak yet for Shadows of the Empire with the N64, but it was from an early standpoint within that uh, that system it was the the system seller of its time mm -hmm. um it also this was one of the few times that we had a video game that left things up in the air this one of the few times we had a star wars video game that left something unanswered unless you did certain things in the game to find out what really happened and it left questions unanswered in other media because in the other media that are being used in this multimedia project, you're left with the impression that Dash Rendar dies at the end. And if you play the video game on anything but the highest difficulty level, you're also left with the impression that he dies at the end. And granted, he comes back later. He's seen briefly in Shadows of the Empire Evolution, and we see him in other things many years later. But for its time, there was the, whoa, is he dead? And no, if you play on, I think it's Jedi, the highest difficulty, you find out that actually he does manage to escape the final explosion but you only see it at that difficulty level, which, again, was something that was a little bit different. It's kind of like, um, I guess the closest equivalent to that is if you play The Force Unleashed 2, there's this question throughout the game, is the Star Killer or the Galen Merrick you're playing in The Force Unleashed 2, is he a clone or is he the original? And you only know, learn that by doing certain things in the game that unlock this motion comic kind of thing. You can open the extras, and it's in that motion comic that the answer to that question is finally presented. Um, so in a sense, it's another one of these kind of, uh, we're going to leave a question unanswered, but if you really want to know, you can do something in the game to find out, as opposed to the end of The Force Unleashed 2 game-wise, where it was... You know, Vader's captured, Star Killer's still around, and we have no idea whatever happened to Star Killer, <laughs> nor how Vader escaped because they just never made another game. Uh, this was it's, it's it's such an unusual experiment for its era. So many games prior to this, uh, whether we're talking the Super Star Wars games for the Super Nintendo, whether we're talking the eight bit era, it was so often we're just going to adapt. At least on consoles, we're just going to adapt the movies over and over again. And now you have this, you have things like Dark Forces, where, and you have things like the X-Wing and TIE Fighter games and such that are finally saying, you know what, we're going to take this up a notch and tell original stories in games, not just the novels uh, and the comics. So uh, it's, it's very impactful for its era. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, talking about Dash, he actually showed up uh, in the X-Wing Alliance game as well. Just another place that you can find Dash Rendar. Mm -hmm. uh, flying alongside Ace Azamine, as I recall. Mm -hmm. And um, another thing that's kind of interesting when I was looking, I, I actually really liked the the voice actor for for Dash Rendar in, in the uh, the game. And I found out he w was played by John Sigan. I'm probably mm -hmm. butchering his last name. Sigan, yeah. Who uh, did the also did the voice of Candorous Ordo or Mandalore in the Knights of the Old Republic series. So I was like, oh, that's actually awesome. And then Lebo, who I've always loved because he he's kind of looks like a uh, 2-1-B medical droid, but not quite really. And, and I've always loved the 2-1-B medical droid. He is uh, played by Tom Kane, who, uh, as, as most people know, was uh, Yoda and then also uh, Wolf 
Ularen and and several other voices on the Clone Wars series. So, uh, and I yep. think I think he's done some stuff on Rebels, or maybe I'm wrong on that. I believe so. I mean, yeah. Tom Kane is sort of the, the super versatile Star Wars voice actor, one of a handful of super mm-hmm. versatile Star Wars voice actors that we see uh, really from 2008 to present when it comes to Star Wars uh, cartoons. I would say uh, the thing that stuck out to me with John Sigan, it's not so much the games he was in that stuck out to me, but uh, I know him best as the Dark Empire audio drama, which, yes, there was a Dark Empire audio drama trilogy that was done by, uh, it was Time Warner or whatever, um, that was released. There were a few times that they actually took comics and turned them into audio dramas back mm-hmm. in the early 90s. Uh, but he played Luke Skywalker yeah, in it, the Dark Empire audio drama and he stuff. He did, a, did a pretty good job. Yeah. It's actually really, I know I know which one you're talking about because I've listened to it and I really like it. Um, I'm not yeah, sure if got, I listen to it. It's got one of my favorite Star Wars moments in any audio production ever. And they've got quite a few different audio dramas and stuff like that out there. It's got the moment of the. Uh, uh, Luke dropping to his knees, throwing down his lightsaber, and you hear it rattle and echo behind you in the stereo and whatnot. It's the, yes, my father's destiny is my own. And I'm just like, oh! <laughs> and Saigon does it perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's cool. I, I didn't I didn't realize that, but now now you're making me want to go back and listen to it because it was awesome. And, of course, uh, Lando Calrissian was voiced by Billy Dee Williams. Yes, yes, he was. Billy D. Williams came back. Uh, for those also, I guess, uh, I'm thinking in terms of science, I think Tom Kane is kind of more recognizable, and obviously Billy D. Williams is more recognizable to uh, Star Wars fans. But if if you haven't played some of those other games that we referenced for John Sigan, maybe you'd know him as Solidus Snake in the Metal Gear Solid games. Um, he, he does a lot of voice work, but a lot of times he's just sort of like the additional voices rather than being one of the starring voices in films. Like, he played a who in Horton Hears a Who, but what does that tell us? Right. <laughs> right. Uh, certainly not as well-known, at least for, from a Star Wars fan standpoint, as Tom Kane would be. But he, you know, he, he got around back in the oh, 90s yeah. and early 2000s for Star Wars voice work. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. That's that's the way a lot of those uh, those voice actors are. Is that it seems like the same ones do everything. Um, but uh, so so getting into the gameplay of this though, so it starts out like we mentioned on on Hoth, and then you sort of jump to where now it's it's after the events of the Empire Strikes Back, and the so I'm trying to think of, of the level after Hoth would be. Oh goodness! Now I can't remember what the level is. I should have pulled this up. Uh, going after the bounty hunters that are trying to go after Han Solo and winding up fighting uh, IG eighty eight on Ord Mantell. Okay, yeah. Now I was thinking that there was something in between that, but I guess not. Um, so yeah, it's that's actually was really cool. I like how they did Ord Mantell because, of course, it's it's something that we heard about from the film. And then turn around and we actually get to see that world um, in this game. And I like it because it feels like Star Wars to me. You know what I mean? Like a lot of times when I see stuff, um, it doesn't feel like Star Wars. Uh, for example, one of my my only issues with the comic or, or the biggest issue that I had was when you're flipping through and I'm like, yes, this looks good. This looks like it should. This, this is very Star Wars to me. But then you see Gurry's ship. And I'm like, that is not Star Wars. Like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> you know, it just, it's, I don't even know how to explain it. It looks like a, um, 
looks like a vase more than anything else, just to be honest. Um, but but to me, Ord Mantell, like I said, it it looked like what I think of as Star Wars. Now maybe it's because I'm from the the '90s era, and that's uh, that's the stuff that that I was sort of immersed in. And I'm like, yeah, this is Star Wars. That's Star Wars. It's all the same. Um, but it even made me think of Jakku because essentially Ord Mantell, or at least the the place where you are, is like a junkyard. So I was like. Oh. <sighs> What? Why do you have to go back to Jakku? <laughs> Sorry. I wasn't actually trying to tempt you into that, but it was something that I'd uh, thought of when I was playing it. You know, seeing seeing this junkyard world. Because essentially what, what you have is, um, it's like a train that you're on the entire time. But rather than being like a, a standard train, it's just uh, a flat, like a flatbed that, that runs along the tracks. And there's other flatbeds and stuff. And it... it it looks really cool. It's it's futuristic, you know. It's it sort of has that sci-fi look to it, but it's also um, it, it also has that lived-in new Star Wars look about it that that I really enjoy. Um, and then of course you get to actually battle IG88, which one of the IG88? Yes, B A C Q. I don't remember which one, but. Um, because I don't think it even said it. In fact, I, I that was one thing I wanted to ask you about because I guess that would be the only contradiction because I was trying to look through and say, okay, how how well did this all pan out? You know, like as far as the... Um, were there any sort of uh, conflict between the, the, the media event? You know, as far as like, did it, did it say this in the book but said this in the comic and those sort of uh, contradict one another? Um, the only thing that I could actually sort of come up with for the time, at least would have potentially been IG 88. And, uh, of course, Boba Fett kills IG 88 in the, uh, the comic, whereas Dash Rendar kills him in the book, but or, only or, I mean, in the, in the game, one of them, right? right. Cause there's right. four IG 88s and, and that's actually how they, they were able to play that out is this is how some of those other IG 88s are gone. You got the one that sticks its mind into the. Uh, the second Death Star, and you got these, and so on and so on. So, now, from what I understand, and granted, this has been a long time ago, kind of thinking back to it, there weren't really any contradictions because they could use IG-88 in so many different ways, mm-hmm. in so many different bodies, and he was still good to go. Yeah, I, I guess the question I was I was getting to was, um, was that something that had been established prior and that they were playing off of, or was that something that they, this was sort of established after, and they're like, wait he was killed here and here uh because he's a droid and they're like yeah but what he got put back together well there's a few of them you know i was just sort of wondering it was was actually around the same time because the game came out in december of 96 and so did the uh uh, tales of the bounty hunters book that introduced the idea of abcd and whatnot in uh therefore i am the tale of ig88 by kevin j anderson Okay, so so it could have went either way. Possibly, they it, the, he could have, um, or, or the game could have been informed by that, or uh, the event, or you know, the media event. I guess could have been informed by that, or they could have been working on it, and they're like, "Crap, we've done these two things. We can't change it. Um, write something about how there's more than one." You know, um, I guess that that could have potentially went either way. So, but that that was the only thing that I was sort of uh, curious about. But with that IG88 battle, um, it was a little. I was a little let down by it just playing it the other day, because you're like, okay, I'm gonna fight IG88, and then he starts like hopping around. <laughs> um, do you recall that? 
So IG-88A winds up basically uh, transferring his consciousness to the Death Star. IG-88B is taken out by Fett on Cloud City. IG-88C is the one that confronts him in the ship. IG-88D is the one that fights Dash. Okay, so they all end up dying then. Yeah, eventually, once the Battle of Endor happens, there aren't any IG-88, ABC, or Ds left, at least in Legends. Wow, okay. And now, of course, in canon, as far as we know, there's just one IG-88. Thank God. (laughs) So far. What if there ends up being more? Like, what if there's one for the entire alphabet? I just... If there's going to be one for the entire alphabet, I would be afraid... Because there does seem to be this push, you know, as we as we joke before, you know, get Michael a boyfriend. It's the uh, <laughs> the uh, you know Captain America and Elsa and, and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of, of sort of the social justice movement kind of pushing on Disney and whatnot. I would be afraid that we would see a new team getting a new book that's like the astonishing IG88s or whatever, and it'd be like IG88L, IG88G, IG88. B, I, G, 88, Q, all as the one team or whatever. And they would be <laughs> like sort the, of put uh, them all together in like different yeah. ones de- depending on their uh, yeah. whatever acronym they can spell. Yeah. Quick, <laughs> call upon I, G, 88's L, G, B, T, and Q because. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I did actually, rem- I, I remembered the other part. So you, you do have the whole Battle of Hoth and then uh, escaping Echo Base, but then you actually go into the asteroid chase. Yes, um, and it's and it's a different type of, of gameplay. This is one of the first mm-hmm. Star Wars console games to really do a lot with switching modes. I mean, you got a snow speeder, you got a swoop bike, you've got that segment that's on the Outrider, and you've got running around and shooting as... Uh, as basically a shooter game, they really kind of changed it up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they threw a lot into this. Now, I will say, trying to play it on the computer, and it, it may have just been the control settings that I had going at the time. It was kind of, it was kind of hard, um, just because I was battling with how uh, how it wanted me to to use my controls. But all in all, not bad. Uh, I got through. I'm I may have gotten blown up once or twice, maybe, well, but but I got all the way through it. Now you were see you were playing on PC. Mm-hmm. I remember playing this and just you're talking about you know it's just weird control schemes. Do you recall what the N64 controller looked like? Oh yeah, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm just like you had to even figure out how to hold that thing. <laughs> you know, it was true. like an upside down trident with its three little prongs. And I think this was one, if I remember correctly, you used the middle prong because it had the trigger in the analog stick, and then everything else is on the right handle and then you had like that third far left handle just kind of sticking out there while you were trying to play this is this is an era where they were experimenting and hadn't quite gotten to the dual analog stick thing yet unfortunately right right which the n64 sort of brought about the uh, the analog stick so can't give them too much crap you know it's and that was the way that it was you would depending on the game and if it used the analog stick or not you would either use the outside handle or the inside handle you, you didn't actually need three hands to to do it so in theory, <laughs> in theory, hands. yeah. Uh, the uh, oh, what's the what's the name of the species like bas- basilisks or whatever? Basilisks that have yeah. the four hands. Yeah, those guys rock it in sixty four. <laughs> and and again, Shizor's out there going like, you know, sometimes you really do need three hands to do it because it's more fun that way. <laughs> 
uh, what if what if we we should go back and have uh, this told as an audio drama and see if we can't uh, petition <laughs> see if, it's all, if it's all Clinton yeah get Clinton to to play the part of uh, Prince Shizor. It's all right though because in the end Lando hung on to Leia's dress, so if there ever was proof needed, <laughs> be like uh, Darth Vader. I did not try to kill Luke Skywalker. You are mistaken. How, how was my? Was that? Was that better? That was. That, that, that okay. was alright. That was alright. Okay. Maybe I, I can. Not, all... Was it? Here you go. Here you go. It's a. I did not have homicidal relations with that Jedi, Luke Skywalker. <laughs> there we go. Maybe I can only do impersonations of presidents. Uh, so anyhow. Oh, just wait. That you're going to have a field day with whoever becomes the next one because you can either do Hillary or you can do Trump. <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, so of course, then we, we go to Ord Mantel, which I mentioned earlier. Um, which this is where, once again, this is kind of a part where uh, our heroes in the novel are off doing something, and then you find out, okay, this is what Dash Rendar was doing at that point, and they they sort of inform one another, uh, and then you actually get to the uh, the Gaul spaceport is is the level following that. Um, I don't know if you're you're familiar with this. It, it's kind of I don't know how I feel about Gaul because to me it looks very Tatooine, and I, I kind of wonder if it's like uh, we're really we're really blowing our budget here. Just try to use some of the same uh, types of backgrounds and stuff to um, to to make this level because it, it, to me it doesn't feel like a new planet. It kind of feels like you're on Tatooine. Oh, it's, you know, it's it's li- technical limitations of the era. It, it was kind of a barren mm-hmm. world, but. So were a lot of game uh, of game worlds at the time. Right, right. Like I said, can't be can't be too critical of it. But that was just one one thing that I noticed. And uh, Gaul is uh, has Gaul ever appeared? Um, but prior to Shadows of the Empire, because they make a big deal about it. They're like, we're going to Gaul. It's on Gaul. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, it is mentioned in Rogue Squadron. It actually. Uh, appears for the first time though in Shadows of the Empire. Okay, okay. So, yeah, and that's that's kind of cool. It's a nice little callback to the uh, the Rogue Squadron books then. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. And, and the thing on top of that that makes it sort of feel like a uh, feel like oh, okay, we um we're just sort of throwing stuff out that we already have is that there are actually wampas that I think more than anything. Yes. The me. rock wampas or whatever they're called. The right. Freaking, they're not in a cold environment. Wampas that have everybody <laughs> pulling their freaking hair out. Right. Right. Which I mean, I guess yetis and Sasquatches. So I, I guess it works. Maybe I shouldn't be so critical on it, but you know, yeah, well, I mean, if you can have, you know, accolades being from different planets later and, and you know, certain things that are native to Naboo that are actually transplanted to Felucia, but it, it's it's the wildlife of the galaxy. We have that tendency to think, well, it's, you know, this wildlife can only exist on any one planet. You forget, can't you stick them on a ship and just take them somewhere? Yeah. It's like a wampa meat market or something <laughs> like that. Like, wampa is a delicacy on that world or something. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, I, I had, I will say, I had less issue with the non-cold environment wampas than I did with the return. I think it was in Dark Saber of the one-armed wampa from Empire uh, returning so long after the fact. So you know, it's it is fine. 
Yeah. So anyhow, let's get to that next level. Um, this is Moss Eisley and Beggar's Canyon. Now, this level, I mean, this right here, like I mentioned earlier, swoop bikes. I thought swoop bikes were awesome back in the day. I thought they were so cool. In fact, one of my biggest disappointments, and you can't you can't get mad at me because I was an eleven year old. Okay, so don't sit here and be like, hey, Phantom Menace hater. Hey, I was eleven. Back off. Um, the swoop bikes. I I never could understand why they created uh, pod racers. I'm like, why are they in pod racers? Why are they not on swoop bikes? Like we we've already established swoop bikes. Give me my swoop bikes. Um, so because he's Lucas and he's gonna do whatever he wants. More a band, Corban. Yeah, he do, he do that. I, I I ain't mad about it anymore. I was at the time, but I was eleven. Um, so and this level is part of it. You know, it's uh it's actually very very similar to um kind of similar ish to me at least. I don't know. I, I don't I don't want to like completely say oh yeah this is like the uh, the pod racing game and people are like no it is not. Look, it's kind of, it's kind of like the pod racing game. It's close, but. and the pod racing mm-hmm. game episode one racer was an N sixty four game. Right, right, and and I think that may be part of it. Uh, the fact that it takes place, um, you know, on Tatooine, and that one taking place in, on uh, Tatooine, sort of. What's up? May I say, if you really want to have fun playing a Star Wars racing game mm-hmm. casually with friends, don't okay. play this. Don't play Racer. I kid you not. Play the pod racing stuff on Connect Star Wars. You will look <laughs> so stupid in the process, but once you get the hang of it, it works well enough that you can have a lot of fun just goofing around with it. This one was more frustrating when I could, when it didn't work, and so was Episode One Racer. It was more frustrating when you like wound up turning the wrong way. But if you want something that's just goofy. Bust out Connect Star Wars. See, you never thought you'd ever get any kind of endorsement for Connect Star Wars. I, I don't know. It's that's one I kind of want to try now. I've I've actually never um, played that outside of a, a Best Buy back in the day. So, um, the point being, like I said, this is uh, this is something cool because to me, this was you know I I don't know if this was as big to to everyone else as it was to me, but I would imagine it was, uh, or at least that it, it, they attempted to make it because this scene appeared in all all of the mediums the the comic the book mm-hmm. and uh the video game and then of course like i said they actually even went as far as to make the swoop bike uh vehicle um so to me this was awesome this i mean the chance to actually be on the swoop bike as dash rendar um when you come in, in the book of course uh luke is on on the swoop and he's getting chased by Jabba's swoop gang, and uh, you have to help uh, take them out in order to protect Luke. And so you get to actually play this level here. Now, in the in the um, in the, the the comic and the book, of course, I mentioned you know threading the eye of the needle. Uh, Luke's the one who does that, but here you have to do that as well. So I, I thought that was really cool, and um, I also like that it's not just a like a oh hey you got a race you actually race, but then ha- our the goal is to smash into the other swoop bikes and cause them to wreck and blow up. Because that's what a hero does. He murders. <laughs> well, I mean, once again, Dash Rendar, you know, talking about uh, the difference between him and the uh, uh, 
you know, the, the difference between him and, and say Han Solo is that he's not really the same. I, I don't see them as the same like a lot of people do. You know, in, in this era, though, mm-hmm. for at least for another year, or actually, no, a matter of months, I guess, Han Solo still shot first. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. For for one more year, he, for one he more was year. The, I mean, yeah. not even a year because it, it was almost immediately after the release here. Uh, I actually, I would say that my favorite or one of my favorite levels of this was actually not the swoop bike riding because that just kind of the controls weren't quite as tight when I've played it at the time. But again, I was playing on N sixty four, but I really kind of like looking back on the Saprosa, the next. Mm-hmm. step along the way where uh, you're on the ship that's carrying the, the the death star information and that sort of thing because looking back on it it really sort of mirrored the feel to me at least of dark forces i was about to say the, the same big games of the era. right right yep they were they both sort of had that same uh like you said type of feel to them and i think dark forces came out the year before it may have been two years before i can't quite remember but yeah yeah i'm with you on that Actually, it's the other way around. Dark Forces came out the year before Shadows of the Empire did. Okay, yeah, that, that's what I meant to say. I apologize. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I meant uh, Dark Forces came out 95 and then Shadows 96. So, um, gotcha. But yeah, kind of similar, but still very cool to because if you were a fan of, of Dark Forces, because that was actually my first computer game was, was Dark Forces. So, um, sort of having that, that, uh, parallel there, I think makes it pretty cool. Um, you know, another thing too, that I, I totally forgot to mention that, uh, I like about this game and they, uh, drop it in back on the, uh, Gaul spaceport is the jetpack. I, I like that they give you the jetpack, but it actually works as a jetpack, not as essentially like a long jump type of thing, if that makes sense. You know, I feel like... He's it, looking at you, Battlefront. <laughs> I feel like a, a lot of games um, that I recall, you know, going back, it's always like, oh, you have a jetpack, but really it's so limited that you have to kind of nail every little spot. So you're essentially just basically doing like a, a double jump, just a little more complicated because you got to get it just right so that you get to that next little ledge. Whereas this one, you can kind of peter and go up and down and, and however you need and, and control it. Yes, you have a, a fuel tank, but that's sort of more just to keep you from flying around like some kind of idiot. Yeah, and again, that was a big thing for this era of video gaming because so we're moving from... 16-bit into that next step before we really get to, you know, the disc-based games where it stops being about, you know, how many bits is this game. Uh, to be able to move around in a three-dimensional space like that with a jetpack was was huge. Now, not mm-hmm. necessarily for this game, but just it for the gaming of that era in general. That kind of freedom of movement was was groundbreaking. Yep. Uh, and then also bringing back the whole um, the whole thing about dark forces now you also have for the next level is the the sewers of the imperial city which uh also was was something from the like you can actually see it in the comic uh and then which it happened in in both the comic and the novel but uh specifically like the dianaga um you actually there's the the dianaga in in the sewers and that reminds me of the third level of um of the dark forces game so, like I said, uh, another parallel there, but also something that you get to see in the, the comic and, and read about in the novel and then experience in the game. 
so I thought that was really, really cool too. Ah, the Dianoga boss. Really? I just remember the Dianoga boss really felt to me like all of a sudden I was playing a Zelda game with a gun. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. So past that, you know, there's there's really just the uh, the last two levels, um, which is uh, Shizor's Palace. Well, Shizor's Palace is where basically um, you have to get inside and do some sabotage in the palace to basically set up the skyhook battle that comes next. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is Shizor's like like Shizor's base is a skyhook. It's basically like connected to the surface of Coruscant. But it's this big palace, like, basically in space, but, but it, they're linked together, and your job is basically to get in there and, and basically mess with it so that you can put him in a vulnerable, pos vulnerable position so that starships like the Outrider could smoke Shizor from space. Right, okay, yeah, that's right. And then, um, and of course, you have the Skyhook battle that follows that, which is the big... Uh, um, the, the big dog fight. And I mean, all of that goes in line with the, uh, the comic and the novel. So I, I think they did just such a great job of, of really keeping everything in line. And, and especially for the game, because a lot of times you sort of find that with games are like, well, this is a game based on this, but if we, if we did it that way, it, it wouldn't really work out very well. So we just did a whole bunch of other levels that kind of feel in the vein of, of that movie or, or whatever that, that product is, but not really anything that appeared there. This is stuff that, I mean, they really go uh, side by side all the way through. And in essence, this is kind of what the story group's supposed to be doing now. Right, that when the stories are being told, they're looking at it from the bigger picture, higher level point of view and saying, how can we integrate this with that? Now, granted, now what the story group's doing is coordinating stories in different eras or different points in the same year. There's not a lot of overlap that's happening. But in essence, that's kind of what the, the Lucasfilm group here was doing when coordinating this. Most of the time when you got a game based on a book or based on a movie or something like that, the movie's already been made or the, the original story's already been made and you're adapting it for the game, which is where they're like, oh, there really doesn't seem to be a place where we could put a climactic final battle. So let's figure out some way to, to shoehorn something in. In this case, when they were planning the comic and planning the novel and planning the game, the planning was happening simultaneously and they were coordinating. So they were able to basically make it so that everything kind of came together here at the end. Um, it's something that unfortunately we don't see enough in tie-in games because tie-ins are usually thought of as like, you know, they're the second you know second third fourth mm -hmm. uh, totem down on the totem right. pole just an afterthought who gives a crap yeah that's yeah, an afterthought whereas in this case they were planning specifically for it and it worked marvelously yeah i mean because like you said this was a game where you jump around from a swoop bike to a jetpack to flying in an airspeeder and you know it's there's lots of diverse gameplay that makes for a really fun game this is true. It was one of the more uh, diverse games that Star Wars had had up to that point. Although I guess I should say it wasn't uh, done marvelously. It was done dark corselessly. <laughs> That's true. That uh, that was back during the the dark horse period. Uh, would that be early in the dark horse period or no? 
about five years in. They they years, kicked okay. off with Dark Empire near the end of ninety one. Okay, yeah. So that's it's a, it's a little after that, right? So I mean, I I think that's it. I don't know if uh, I mean I think we've covered our, our characters very well. You know, I, I didn't know if we wanted to go into like a character focus and mention uh, she's or and or uh, Dash Rendar, but you know, I I don't really. I mean, I think we've pretty much covered them. I guess. I guess have we really explained who those characters are? Who are you? Han Solo. I'm Captain of the Millennium Falcon. I'm Ahsoka. I am C-3PO Human Cyborg Relations. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. Oh, you know, Dash Rindar's basically the... The argument is that he's the Han Solo substitute, but he's the... Uh, he's the, the smuggler-slash-scoundrel type character. He's brought in to help the rebels... And winds up getting wrapped up in basically missions beyond what he ever expected he was going to get involved with. Um, but we find later he had more connections with the Rebels than we realized before in stuff like Shadow Games. So they've sort of built him up as more of a of a Rebel ally, although not really a Rebel, uh, than he was by the time that we met him here. And then, of course, you have Shizor, a rival for Vader's position as a right-hand man to the Emperor, who is the, the gangster crime lord guy who's... Very smooth, thanks to his pheromones and whatnot. And I guess the other one we'd have to throw in here is Guri, the uh, uh, the human replica droid, who is essentially a, a droid that doesn't realize she's a droid that then uh, will find herself sort of struggling with questions of existence and so forth along the way. Uh, and these are all characters that left somewhat of an indelible mark on Star Wars in general. I would say that probably the villains more so than Dash. Dash shows up more later but it's really Shizor and to an extent even Guri that wind up having a more lasting impression on the Legends continuity of the time, particularly Shizor with Black Sun still carrying into uh, today. And of course we have the introduction of well, the question of where did Leia get that armor to be Bush in the beginning of Return of the Jedi? Well, it was part of the mission here, and Chewbacca had one too going as Snuva. So, uh, so many little tidbits. And, and that they work in here. And that's where she got her uh, thermal detonator as well. Yep, there you go. And we have uh, the, well, wait a second. What about the Bothans dying and bringing us the plans and the setup and everything for the Battle of Endor? That's what you can do when you've got a short time and really only one major multimedia project happening between two films as opposed to having a three-year gap and tons of old and new stories just kind of haphazardly thrown in between A New Hope and Empire. It's, it is striking when you look back at the Legends continuity at how sparse and relatively well-connected the era between Empire and Jedi was versus A New Hope and, and Empire. I mean, it's, it's a night and day difference. Not nearly <laughs> as interconnected and, and feeling smooth as you know the, the prequel interim eras were prior to the Clone Wars cartoon series or anything like that, but certainly uh, this really was an experiment that seems to have paid off both in terms of just the project itself, but also in really solidifying its era. Yeah. I mean, do you think that it, like, let's, if, if this would have bombed really hard, do you think that um, they would have just continued on with their, um, their plans? Or do you think that at that point they would have said, uh, looks like maybe we don't have the interest we thought we had. Define their plans. You mean like the movies? 
Yeah, yeah. I just mean, I just meant oh, yeah. Star Wars I, this, as a franchise. This is where I think whole. you and I completely diverge in opinion. I don't think this had any bearing whatsoever on whether okay. there were going to be new movies or special editions. I think this would, if anything, if this had flopped, it would have caused them to more reevaluate the idea of doing the cross connection between the tales as tightly as they did. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter really anyway because they didn't do this kind of thing again for many years. That's I mean, true. <laughs> what the Force, the Force Unleashed was what two thousand eight. I guess, what, 12 years later, yeah, they yeah. finally do this kind of thing again, and, and on a much smaller, less expansive scale. It's really Force Unleashed 2 that does this in any somewhat more successful, multi-pronged degree. True, true. Yeah. Now, w- would we have seen Black Sun as much? Would we have seen Shizor as much uh, and the Falene and that sort of thing? If it had failed, would we have seen Black Sun and the Falene showing up again in Clone Wars later? That, I think, is a more valid question. I think that that would have been... I don't... I, I really don't know what the answer to that question is because they loved... Lucas loved delving back into the games to bring things into the Clone Wars, so he might have... But would it have been, and this was a big deal at the time, but would it have been as likely to be pulled back? I don't know. Right, right. Um, okay, yeah. It's uh, Like I said, I, I, I don't know. I, I was just sort of curious. My, my thoughts are, um, you know, I, I was sort of more saying that it, it's that's the way it seems. It seemed like this was sort of a measuring stick, um, not so much that I, I feel like, for certain that, that that was the case. Uh, another thing I, I did want to mention, though, and we were talking about some uh, some of the connections and things, the whole thing about uh, Obi-Wan's journal that we, we've been reading about in the, the new Marvel Star Wars uh, was actually went back to when Luke got his, when he built his lightsaber in uh, Shadows of the Empire. He references that he learned how from, uh, from Obi-Wan's journal. Yeah, the idea of Obi-Wan leaving a journal behind actually is something that's not new. A lot of folks are thinking, oh, well, this is such a big thing that Marvel's doing. And not really. I mean, it existed previously. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I love that sort of thing. Um, I know I always give Legends a hard time, and that's more just to mess with people. But I, I really do like seeing things like that where... Um, they they sort of pay tribute to that in in newer stories or or Filoni will uh, pull things into Rebels or or into Clone Wars and and I, I think that's pretty cool and it's it's really fun that like if you go back through something that you haven't listened to uh, or read in a while or um, or you know you basically haven't experienced in a while or, or or at all and then you find that and you're like oh holy crap this is where that come from or you know this may have been what gave them inspiration here um, so I, I just it adds to the mythos for me you know. And even beyond the mythos of Star Wars in general, I think that this game is a big part of the mythos surrounding just LucasArts in general. Um, I mean, nowadays we kind of, and and very recently, we were sort of lamenting LucasArts no longer uh, developing its own games. It's just going to be this label that things are are published under as things move, you know, with EA and all that after the Disney pickup and all. Uh, And granted, LucasArts had lots of other issues prior to that but lucas arts has a very storied history when it comes to uh, just the the moments in time where it does these revolutionary things these groundbreaking things that get people's attention and help sort of propel things forward within the industry maybe not as much as ilm in special effects right or, or lucasfilm in terms of filmmaking in some respects but it's it has its mark 
And this was in many ways getting us into, I think, I think LucasArts really sort of hit their high point in terms of their impact and just a, a just a slew of strong games as we get into the mid to late 1990s. And this is just right there at the core of it all, that at the center of that movement. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, I mean, we, we did a nice big episode for this one. I don't think that we've left anything out. I mean, I, I feel like we pretty much flipped every... Uh... There's micro machines! Okay, now we've covered everything. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's I totally forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, there, there was so much. <laughs> and, you know, even talking about, like, the comic packs, they, and it's funny that, that this was the one chosen, but they even made a comic, or yeah, Shadows of the Empire comic pack later on, mm-hmm. uh, about the same time as they, they were doing a, a lot of the ones that uh, people like to get now around the, the 30th anniversary. Um, but the the hilarious thing is it was Shizor and Princess Leia from that scene. <laughs> yes, yes it was. So she was wearing the uh, the blue dress that doesn't really look sexy. It kind of looks like um uh kind of like a 80s or early 90s workout uh music video hey. type of dress, but it, it's okay. Any dress can be sexy once it's on the floor. <laughs> Thank you, Shizor. Uh, so you're you're welcome. <laughs> with that, I think we'll just go ahead and start uh, closing shop here. Um, of course, you can find us uh, over on uh, StarWarsReport.com. Uh, we have our Twitter account, which is just at Cloud City Casino, and then of course the Cloud City Casino Facebook page. I can be reached at Morris Isley and Nate. Where are some of the places that you can be found? Well, you can also hear me on Star Wars Beyond the Films, which is also on StarWarsReport.com. My Star Wars Timeline Gold, the most comprehensive Star Wars chronology available anywhere, is at StarWarsFanWorks.com slash Timeline. You can find my YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash User slash Chrono Radio. That's where you'll find from the Star Wars Home Video Library, the Battlefront live stream uh, that Michael's been on a couple times recently, and all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, you can find the Timeline and Beyond the Films and Cloud City Casino, of course, and whatnot, uh, all on Facebook, do searches for those names, or uh, I guess it'd be facebook.com slash SWTimelineGold, Films, and Cloud City Casino. Awesome, man. Yeah, and certainly uh, be looking for those those live streams, because we have a blast on there. Uh, we're a little bit unleashed, I guess you would say, and uh, like I said, we, we, we've, we've gotten a little... Uh, I guess a little more comfortable with them every time and figuring out how, how we're going to do it. And uh, I think they get better mm-hmm. and better. So, so it's yeah, if, if only there wasn't the lag that's that a lot of times we have the, wait, wait, uh, um, excuse me. What'd you say? Uh, 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 right. My bad. Right. Kind of stuff. But that's just the nature of, of the online gaming thing. Right. Right. For sure. So, um, you know, besides that, the only thing I would say is of course, if you haven't already subscribed to us on iTunes or tune in or stitcher, um, especially with the iTunes, helps us out tremendously uh if we get reviews uh it's that works on a star system five stars of course being the best would really appreciate one of those and then even writing it uh writing it out is going to uh, i think the way they do their little uh formulas or whatnot that uh, it, it may help out more but past that also it gives us an idea for what you do like and what you want to hear more of um like i said also find us on our um uh, you can always send us an email and give us that same type of information at the cloud city casino at gmail so uh any of those ways definitely get get in touch with us and and we certainly appreciate it and always remember let the wookie win and look out for shizor
because he thinks you got a pretty mouth. <laughs> IG88B, god damn, I'm getting confused. This IG88 always confused the f*** me. <laughs> think I found our bloopers. God, I hate IG88 and his bull. Hello there. <laughs> this party's over.